Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norris Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So before we get started today, I just wanted to ask a quick favor of you and that if you are enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate if you could take two seconds to leave a rating and review. And in return, I promise you that this podcast will never, ever have ads. Now, getting back to the podcast, we've spoken at length about the merits of a SaaS-based business. But what we haven't spoken so much about are the different go-to-market models that the SaaS world has pioneered. Where back in the old days, you had big companies like Oracle spending months courting a CTO with steak dinners and rounds of golf in order to sell one piece of software. But now with the increasing consumerization of the enterprise, we're seeing an entirely new go-to-market model pop up. It's one that's a lot lower touch, higher velocity, and inbound driven in nature, where through the use of digital marketing, like say email campaigns and content creation, a SaaS company can generate demand in a flywheel-like fashion without spending anywhere near as much to acquire customers. So that is why I am very excited to announce Brian Halligan, the CEO and founder of HubSpot as today's podcast guest. Now, Brian and his team founded HubSpot in 2005 and have since become the gold standard when it comes to inbound marketing. So it's no surprise that HubSpot is now worth over $6 billion in the public markets and has set its sights on building a platform that curates the entire customer experience. So in today's podcast, Brian and I discuss what exactly a demand gen flywheel is and how to build one. Now, Brian also shares his take on competing with large incumbents in mature markets and the key KPIs one should hone in on when building out an inbound marketing engine. Lastly, Brian and I discuss the key patterns he sees across the most successful public SaaS companies and how he thinks about HubSpot's positioning through the next recession. So why don't we get started? Hey, Brian, how's it going? Going great. Thanks for joining the podcast here. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start with a little bit of background on you and your founding rationale for HubSpot? Sure. I grew up in sales, actually. I was kind of an enterprise salesperson, and I spent the first 10 years of my career at a software company called PTC, which is a hardcore sales-driven company. And then I moved to a company called Groove Networks. I spent four years there. I started as the uh, head of sales. And that was a hardcore product company, an innovation company. So I sort of saw it kind of from both ends. And then I went to business school and went to Sloan. And I met Darmesh, my co-founder. We basically started HubSpot out of Sloan. It was born of the Sloan School. Got it. And what exactly does HubSpot do? What was the pain point at the time that you guys noticed in the market? And how did you solve that? Okay, there were a couple of ahas that led to HubSpot. I had one, Darmesh had one. I did an internship at a little tiny venture capital firm based in Boston back then while I was in school. And I would work with the startup founders and the marketers and the heads of sales of the companies. And then what they wanted me to do is help them think about growth. And so I would ask them, you know, what's the plan? How are you going to market and sell your product? And they all kind of had the same story. They were going to buy a list and cold call. They were going to buy another list and spam people. They were going to do a lot of advertising, do the big trade show, hire the big expensive PR firm. And the more I watched it, (laughs) the more kind of negative I got. I was like, that were great 10 years ago, but everyone today has caller ID and blocks out those calls. Everyone's got spam protection. Everyone's got a DVR. People have ad blocker. Like, ye old playbook doesn't work anymore. That was kind of my aha, that marketing was broken. Darmesh, at the same time, he basically blogged his way through business school. Every time he heard a cool lecture or whatever, he'd write a blog article about it. And I was comparing using Alexa 
the old Alexa. Uh, <laughs> The traffic to his blog in the 10 or so venture-backed startups I work with, he had 100 times more interest in his crappy little blog than any of my wealthy venture-backed startups. So I was curious as to what the heck he was doing. And he was marketing in a new way. He was matching the way he marketed with the way people actually consumed content and learned and made decisions. And he was very clever at search engine optimization, getting his blog found. And they're very clever at connecting with other bloggers and very clever at social media marketing. So we describe the world as the old ways outbound, interruption-based, the new way is inbound, kind of pulling people in. And then we said, all right, let's give this idea of inbound a go. And we were evangelizing, excited about it. And we tried to do it, it's just hard. You know, you have to put it in a content management system and blogging software and hire an SEO consultant. And then you put social media monitoring tools and CRM and marketing automation and email and ticketing. Like the next thing you have this really complicated IT setup that mere mortals can't do. And that became HubSpot. We basically took the idea of, first thing you need to do is transform the way you market to match the way people actually buy, and then you need a platform to pull that off. So that was kind of generation one of HubSpot and how we came up with the idea. And so just to hone in on what exactly generation one entails, you mentioned the content management system, the SEO optimization. Could you walk through the platform, let's say on a product by product basis, as a company thinks about, you know, I've just started up as a startup, what should my inbound marketing program even look like? Sure. Well, since then, it's changed a lot. So you want to know what it looked like back then and what it looks like today? Maybe today. That's more relevant. Okay. So I kind of look at our history as like, there's a couple chapters in the vision of HubSpot. The first chapter, there was an arbitrage opportunity, still is on the internet, where it used to be that if you wanted to get found, you would rent space on someone's radio show and you do an ad, or you rent space to someone's TV show, or you rent space in someone's magazine. And then around 2006, when we started HubSpot, the aha we had was, well, you don't have to buy a frequency and a studio and all this stuff to start a radio station and spend a million dollars. You start a darn podcast like yeah, we're on exactly. right now. Right. <laughs> Same thing with a TV show. You, you can use YouTube and you, create, you don't have to buy a frequency and a channel and all this stuff. It's cheap. You can do it. Same thing with, you know, rents. You buy an ad in a newspaper magazine. Start your own newspaper magazine and start blogging. And so there was that sea change of foot and there was an arbitrage opportunity for people to market in a whole, whole new way to create content and pull people in and sell ads to themselves, basically. And that still works. It works incredibly well if you're a marketer today and you're buying lists and spamming people and you're cold calling people and you're doing all that old school stuff, you're screwed. It just won't scale. You have to be doing inbound. You have to match the way you market with the way people actually make decisions in today's day and age. And Despite a lot of advice you'll hear from people who built go-to-market models in 1990, there is a new way to do it. Since then, I feel like there's a new arbitrage opportunity that the internet provides people. And it's in creating one of these delicious end-to-end beautiful customer experiences. And I just think of them like myself, John. I come home from work every night and I take a lift home. And then when I get home, I turn on Spotify and listen to some music. And then I got a dog and I open the box from Chewy and I give the dog a new treat. And then I go up and I ride on my Peloton and get a good workout in. And then I come downstairs, get some food from DoorDash, and I watch a movie on Netflix and have a real good time. Then I go to bed on my Casper mattress. Like All of those companies, what I think is interesting about them is what's novel about them isn't their product. It's the same product that everyone else is selling. It's the business model and the gorgeous end-to-end experience around it. And it used to be that your product needed to be 10 times better than the competition. Now more and more, it's less about the product. Now you need your experience to be 10 times better than the competition. So we've moved from building a software system to help marketers 
to remove for a software system and a methodology to help any business with that end-to-end experience. We've added sales software and service software, and we have a full kind of hub system. Wonderful. So just taking control and helping to support the end-to-end customer experience, not just the inbound lead, mm-hmm. right? In fact, I would say more people are buying for CRM. Oh, wow. Our sales product's super popular, growing fast. We have a freemium model, and the freemium model's really worked. And I think people in the industry think of it as an inbound marketing software. I think most of our customers are described as a CRM company. The CRM part of our product is super strong and growing. And that's how people come into HubSpot more often than not, is the free CRM product. So let's talk about that then in terms of customers coming into the product, sure. right? So the go-to-market motion. And one of the things I love about HubSpot is I would assume you eat your own dog food. We do. Right? We drink and our so, own champagne, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in drinking some lovely champagne, could you explain your go-to-market motion there? Sure. And then how that's evolved over time as well? Yeah. So there's really two sources of leads that come into HubSpot. One source is inbound marketing. We create content. We got a really popular blog. We have a podcast, video, social, like we're a content producing machine. And we get, you know, north of 10 million visitors a month from Google Organic. We're just really good at that. That's where our roots are. That's about half our leads. The other half of our leads are free products. So we have a free CRM offering, and it's just like any other CRM you would use, but it's much easier. It includes marketing automation, it includes email, it includes ticketing. Like it's a free, rich CRM offering that if you're a little tiny startup getting going, it's perfect, right? And then you grow and you hopefully pay as you grow and become huge. That's about half our lead. So we get half our business through content and half our business through code. Some people describe HubSpot as two channels, content marketing and code marketing. Uh, that's really interesting. And just to highlight the difference between your higher velocity you go to market with the legacy software sales model, back in the 90s, you'd have these really expensive and slow sales cycles where you'd convince a CTO to go out to a nice steak dinner with you and play golf for months on end before they made a decision, right? Yep. Whereas nowadays, software procurement has been democratized to some degree. And I can just sign on to a cloud platform and swipe my credit card. So that does beg the question, which is, if you were starting up an enterprise SaaS company today, what would be the key KPIs you'd look to track? I think if you're starting a company selling into the enterprise, it used the internet is all about working around middlemen. And so one big middleman that used to be in, in the middle of every decision in every company, no matter where it was, the CIO used to make all those decisions and was gatekeeper for everything. That's totally changed. The decision power has really been pushed out to the edge of the organization. And if you look at the companies in the B2B world that are doing really well, like Zoom or Slack or Stripe or even like Airtable, Segment, Upspot, they're all pretty much have some sort of a freemium style motion where they're getting users cranking on it and managers cranking on it. And then it's pushed into the CIO and the CIO keeps an eye on it, but these are all SaaS applications. So it's not that much the CIO has to do. Sometimes the CIO is building organizations to extend those platforms and connect it to other systems, but you need to couple it. And some somebody had a great tweet. I'm going to mess it up the other day, but roses are red, violets are blue. You need a freemium motion in enterprise sales reps too. <laughs> and it was a partner down at one of your rival firms, Andreessen Horowitz. I thought he was right. When you can really get that freemium motion working and couple it with a B2B sales motion, it's super powerful. And you have to get good at both. And those two things fight each other. And you have to learn how to 
to massage that. By the way, I don't think anyone's got that figured out perfectly. I don't think Slack or Dropbox or Google or any of us have it figured out. It's all the early innings. I think that chapter is being written as we speak. That's wonderful. And so let's hone in on the inbound side. So let's say I'm starting up an inbound marketing program now. What are the key metrics I should look for? Is it you know the size of the funnel over dollars spent? What even should I think about? I personally moved away from the funnel. I think it's kind of a dated metaphor. The funnel that has a couple problems with it. <laughs> the funnel was invented in an era when word of mouth really was didn't happen that well or efficiently. And so it doesn't give you any credit for what I think is your most powerful channel. You get your marketing channel, the sales channel, and your customers. Out here in particular, where you want to get your early adopters, your customers are your best channel, not your marketing or your sales. It needs to complement it. I like to think of it like a flywheel. On that flywheel, you've got visitors. Of course, you have to generate those, turn them into free users, get that free user spread in the organization, get them to buy something, delight those customers. And the lighter you can make that and faster you can make it, and the happier the customers are, the more leverage and the more that flywheel will spin. Those are the things I would look at if I were a startup. That makes a ton of sense. And as I think about the names you listed off on the B2B side, whether that's the Zooms or the Slacks or the Stripes of the world, another key theme, and this is also consistent with HubSpot as well, is customer retention, specifically net positive revenue retention. Yes. And so when I think about that in the context now of HubSpot, you've made a name for yourself in terms of being the inbound marketing platform, but you've now expanded to CRM and a number of other tools. And so I think about that as a land and expand motion to yeah. some degree. And so as you think about these companies, as you think about HubSpot, do you have any lessons learned in driving upsells into new products and building out a full platform? Yeah, I think one of the things that's gone well for us is we had a marketing product, marketing hub, and then we had made the decision, okay, we want to move from being an app company to more of a suite company and add sales and add service. And when we added the second line of business sales, we wanted to do two things. One, we wanted to have a freemium motion because that's how we felt like people would want to buy. CRM's like kind of well understood today. And we want to just make the easiest, most powerful system and make it as easy as possible to try it and even use it and get value before you even upgrade it. And so that was one change we wanted to make. The other change we wanted to make was we wanted to have two front doors into HubSpot. We wanted the marketing product to be compelling in and of itself. We wanted that lead machine to work and grow that business. We wanted the sales product in and of itself to be a magnet for new customers so that we could cross sell both ways. And that's kind of rare, actually. You usually see when people come out with a second product line, the only customers for the second product line are cross-sold into the existing product line. So what we've been able to pull off is our second product line is pulled net new customers in, and then we've turned that into a way that we can sell the marketing product into. And so that two front doors thing, I think is tricky, but is incredibly valuable. If you have two engines of growth, you can cross-sell mm. both ways. And like you look at acquisitions that often happen, oftentimes acquisitions will happen and that company will actually get subsumed into the bigger company and it'll only be cross-sold into the existing customers. They'll stop selling new customers. That probably makes sense if you're acquiring that company. But when we went into sales, we said, I think there's an opportunity to make this product so good and so differentiated in the market, make it so easy and so powerful that, heck, I'm going to start there and I'll look at marketing later. Okay, so then let's hone in on so differentiated, right? Nowadays, when I Google CRM software or marketing automation software, I mean, pages upon pages of paid ads, 40 different entries for all these different companies, whether that be the sales forces of the world or some new startup. Totally. So let's talk about HubSpot, specific tangible differentiation versus the market. Yeah, I think what's unique about HubSpot is the breadth. So we build you your website, all your content marketing, all your marketing automation, 
your CRM, all your sales enablement tools, your ticketing system, your workflow, all of that is together in one system. And that's not completely unique, but it's relatively unique. What I think is unique about the fact that we have all of that is we wrote every line of code ourselves. It wasn't cobbled together through acquisition with multiple different quirky UIs, multiple different backends you're syncing. It's not only enterprise grade on the back end, it's consumer grade on the front end. And that's pretty unique. And it's actually really hard to build high quality consumer grade software and enterprise grade software. And so I think that's a big advantage and you can start free. And so it's working. Yeah, that all gets back to the central pattern and theme that you mentioned earlier, which is customer experience. So I'd love to dive in there. You alluded to it a little bit, but maybe let's just jump in. I'm going to leave it broad. I mean, what is customer experience to you and how specifically is HubSpot facilitating that? I like to think of customer experience is, is like the best way. It's like that story of all those companies I talked to earlier. They all built the same product as their incumbent, but they built a better business model and they built a better go-to-market model and a better customer experience. I think that's the way to go today as well. I think even in B2B, that's starting to happen. You're seeing that's starting to happen. And in order to build one of those killer, killer, killer customer experiences, it's hard to do if you've got like, 14 different platforms that you're trying to sync behind the scenes and 14 different development languages you're trying to do and all these backend systems you're trying to integrate, we try to present is a really clean UI, really clean APIs, a really awesome backend and allow people to do that in a much easier, lighter way without tons of cash and tons of developers create a really nice experience. So let's even hone in on customer experience. That's a very nebulous concept, totally. right? So maybe, I don't know if you have a specific case study in mind of how HubSpot enabled someone or even just one of your favorite companies out there, whether that's a Casper or DoorDash. Yes. Maybe just talk about tangible specifics to what customer experience means to you. Sure. Like the folks at Purple use HubSpot. And I think if you look at people who use a traditional stack and you look at their BET and IT and ops organizations, they're going to have to be huge to support that kind of thing. Within HubSpot, you have a much smaller group. And what you can do is... If you're not using HubSpot, you're probably using WordPress for your website. You've got a CRM system in there. You've got another marketing automation system in there and another ticketing system in there and another analytic system in there. And it's complicated and hard to manage all that stuff. What I mean about customer experience is trying to create a great experience end to end. So for example, if you've got your website on HubSpot, you've got your CRM on HubSpot, you've got your email on HubSpot, you've got your sales reps on HubSpot, some very powerful customer experience things can happen. For example, you. You visit my website, you fill out a form, you're tweeting about my company, you're downloading a white paper, you become a freemium version uh, user of our product. Every interaction you have with HubSpot is tracked on a almost like a Facebook-style timeline inside of HubSpot. Now, why do I bring that timeline up? Well, that timeline is useful for multiple purposes. Super useful for the sales rep, because the sales rep wants to know all the different things you're doing, which part of the product you're using. Did you file a ticket? Did you visit the website? Did you invite a friend to use the product? So I'm keeping a very close track on you, and I can engage with you in a really rich, powerful way. Not knowing what you've been doing before is hard to engage with you. That same timeline is very powerful for the website developers because that website developer, he can create segments. He can say, I want to target venture capitalists. Venture capitalists are a little different than most mere mortals. And I want my website to present in a totally different way for all venture capitalists. So I bucket all of you into a segment for venture capitalists. 
and I put you on there. Then I say, well, venture capitalists are important to my startup because they might invest in my company in addition to buying. And so what I want to happen is I want a chat experience to show up whenever a venture capitalist visits my site. And I don't want the bot to show up. I want a human to be there in real time and have a chat. And I want the chat to show up in there. And then the marketer can go in, create segments of location, venture capitalists, whatever, and then really rich, personalized email marketing to you. Person who's managing the social can track on Twitter. All these venture capitalists are saying stuff on Twitter, ticketing system, all of that is tied together. So you get an unbelievable, personalized, awesome experience because it's all powered in one system. And just to compare that to even say 10 years ago in a lot of fashions where if you think about the old age manufacturer, they're pushing product through multiple distribution channels, through a wholesaler and then to a retailer. And none of it was personalized, right? It was mass produced. Yes. And now instead, when you see a Casper or a Netflix, it's all hyper, hyper personalized, yes. which is why we give them the dollar instead of the retailer. It's remarkable the difference that personalization makes in the experience, as long as you don't do it in a way that's cringeworthy and makes the experience materially better. I don't think you need to be 10 times better than the competition. You need to be a little better in customer experience. And it's remarkable how quickly people will switch to you if you're just a little better. So one flip side, I think oftentimes of a freemium model or a self-serve motion is that in the same sense, a lot of times your customers can flip out the back end of the funnel just as quickly, aka a lot of your customers might be smaller, medium-sized businesses. And so how do you think about churn and retention on the logo side? Yep. We think a lot about it, as you might imagine. Historically, building a company in sort of the startup world or small business or medium business or these growth companies was very difficult because you're losing a lot of customers on the back end high. I mean, even your startups, even Series A startups, a lot of them go out of business. And there's a new playbook on how to get after this. The first thing you need to do is be able to keep your customer dollar retention or even your logo retention as high as possible. So the product's got to be not just sticky, sticky's not enough anymore. It's gotta be really good. The quality's gotta be good, that the users are delighted using it. It's not just sticky, sticky's not enough. But then what you need to figure out how to do is cross-sell additional products. So let's say at HubSpot, our customer dollar retention is, call it low 80s, right? 82, 83, 84 bounces around in there. But our revenue retention, including upsell, is around 100%, bounces around a little bit as well. And so if you really want to scale any business today in the SaaS industry, you've got to get that math right. And historically in the SMB space, people haven't been able to figure that out. But HubSpot's got to figure it out. Shopify's got to figure out zero. There's a bunch of these companies in the small business growth business that have the playbook now of how do you really grow a startup in this kind of space. There's a new playbook, I think. I'll tell you the other interesting thing. Being in Silicon Valley reminds me of the days when I had to raise money out here. And it was a painful experience for Darmesh and I. <laughs> we go up and down Sand Hill Road, and we got our butts kicked all over Sand Hill Road. And I remember flying back from San Francisco every time with Darmesh, just like, ah, oh, it's just this most soul-crushing parts of HubSpot where every round we did out here. People didn't like the idea of selling into small, medium-sized businesses, and there was definitely a bias against it, and people didn't have the playbook. What's interesting, I think, that all these new SMB companies that have emerged and are growing and now not just selling to SMB, but selling into the enterprise, none of them were started out here, right? So you look at Shopify's Ottawa, HubSpot's Boston, Zendesk now an enterprise software company, but they were not at the beginning, they were SMB out of Denmark. Zero, Atlassian, they were all started outside this. There's an echo chamber around Silicon Valley that's hard to break out of. Yeah, it's a total bubble. So I want to shift to the second part of the podcast here, Brian, which centers on the title. 
pattern recognition. Okay. You've now had a number of successful quarters as a public CEO. So do you have any key lessons learned or reflections there? It's underrated. <laughs> uh, remember when we were going public, all my founder friends are like, what are you crazy? Don't go public. It's going to be awful. The truth is we traded one set of kind of quirky, slightly misaligned venture investors for a set of quirky in a different way, also slightly misaligned in a different way, set of public <laughs> investors. And it's about the same amount of time to work with your private company board as your public company investors. And I found the public market investors to be reasonable and rational players, more so than they're, they've given credit for. I think when people think of public market investors, they think of you know, hedge funds. And hedge funds do buy HubSpot's shares, but the vast majority of our shares are owned by Fidelity and you know Capital and these very large pools of money that are much more patient and are much more aligned with a long-term, you know, multi-year big big outcome for them. So the one thing I would say that's counterintuitive about going public is, I like it. I think it's good. I think it's healthy for the company, and uh, you have to set expectations right, and you have to be patient yourself. But I've found them to be very rational and reasonable people. And as you think about the subset of public SaaS companies today, yes. what are the consistent patterns across the most successful performers? Well, most of them really optimize for growth. Growth over time, you can see you know, the multiples of earnings versus multiple of growth and growth has been rewarded. It's no big secret growth has been rewarded. I think that comes and goes in and out of favor at different times, but over the long haul, that's really been favored. And you can definitely see that. I tell you another thing that I've noticed, another pattern I've noticed so I've been in tech since 1990. And for the longest time, you didn't have to do any real succession planning in tech. Tech companies have gotten good at that. Like Adobe's had a you know, very successful CEO in there recently. Intuit's done some really good succession planning. Great new CEO in there. Like there's been a series of really good hires of folks who aren't puppets of the founders, feel like founders themselves, and have taken the companies on, you know, at a new level of growth. I'm very, very impressed, particularly with Satya at uh, Microsoft, but also the Adobe guys and Intuit. Used to be that an enterprise software company, the founders would get a little tired, get really rich, and they'd get slightly less engaged in the business and kind of sit back on their heels a little bit. That doesn't happen anymore. These, It's not only there's a lot of innovation and in startups going on, but big companies like Adobe and Microsoft and Intuit and Salesforce, they keep going. They keep innovating. They keep buying companies and they're on the balls of their feet. That's another big change I've seen and another pattern I've seen. Yeah. That's what happens when you're not selling on-prem perpetual licenses anymore is you got to keep competing, right? <laughs> I guess. I think it's that. And the customers have a lot more leverage because uh, of the contract structure and SaaS. I also think the customers have a lot more leverage because there's just so many more options out there. When we started HubSpot, we counted 14 14 companies selling some sort of marketing technology. There's over 6,000 marketing technology companies now. Just the plethora of startup activities makes it very difficult to be a venture capitalist, by the way. Yeah. The barrier to entry to start even a good software company is really low. Yeah, for sure. And so one thing you noted about the first pattern, which is just growth. And, and one thing you said was that comes in and out of favor. And so I always think about companies now within the context of the inevitable recession. So as you think about HubSpot, what do you think helps it weather that storm? Yeah, I think companies like HubSpot and Shopify who compete with incumbent kind of first-gen cloud vendors, we go to market with not only an easier offering, but we go to market with an offering that's materially 
less expensive to set up, operate, and just the bill every month. And I think as our functionality grows, and it's grown a lot so that now we can serve good-sized companies, and we, we run HubSpot, 3,000 people on HubSpot, that when the recession hits, I think people are like, you know, why wouldn't I pick HubSpot at this point? Because it's, you know, it's an order of magnitude cheaper to operate. Yeah, I think that's a great point to make as well, because I think about, let's say, a HubSpot five to 10 years ago or comp to that. I think oftentimes people say, well, yeah, eventually you graduate from HubSpot because you're successful enough and you're a large enough enterprise. And I don't think that's the case anymore. It's not really happening. It used to have, by the way, there's a company I admire a lot called Marketo. And I used to joke with their founder, Phil Fernandez. I'm like, you don't even need to do any marketing because all your customers graduated off of such Marketo. <laughs> it doesn't really happen anymore because our, you know, we, that part of the product's gotten really, really, really strong. And I think it's kind of the same with Shopify, where you can, and both of us are very similar. It's like start as a two person company and we'll scale up with you. Yeah, that's wonderful. And so another key pattern that I've seen across the most successful recent businesses has been a focus on diversity. And so I'm curious for you as a CEO and a founder, how do you think about some tactics for supporting diversity and recruiting talent in diverse fields? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess the first thing I would recommend is start early. One of the largest mistakes we made at HubSpot was we hired all our buddies from Sloan and all our buddies looked a lot like us. And so we turned around, we have 100 people, and it was just ridiculously high number of people who looked very similar. And so it needs to be an initiative if you're a founder right off the bat. And we're, I think, done a decent job of digging out of that hole. And it's been a lot of smart, hard work that's gone on. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of initiatives we've done. One is called the Rooney Rule. And Rooney Rules in football that it's just ridiculous that such a large percentage of the players are black and almost none of the coaches are black. It's like, why is that? That's just stupid. And so they put in a rule, and if you can interview someone, you have to interview a person of color. And I would say it's had mixed results in the NFL. It's had good results with us. We've improved a lot on that side. We apply it to women. We apply it to any group other than white men. And it's really improved the quality of slates we're seeing and it's really had a nice impact. We also have something called the Norrington Fund. We have a board member named Lori Norrington, which is an extra pool of stock we can use if we really want to go after one of these people. And they're harder to get now because the supply and demand is a little off for them. That has worked. And I would say we're seeing that in the numbers. If you look at HubSpot three years ago, 47% of our employees are women. And three years ago, 21% of managers were women. And today it's 47% are women and 47% of managers are women. So we've made some progress. Those programs have worked. The other thing that's worked is our board. So we've hired three of our board members are women. And that just sends us a strong signal. And we have them speak with the women. We have a very active women's group. That's worked really well. We have lots of work to do, but we're making progress. I'm happy with some of the progress we made. We have a lot more work to do, but we're starting to move the needle. That's great. And then last question here is around content because we're both content geeks for yes. different reasons. So recent movie, show, book, any sort of content that's changed your perspective and why? Oh, really? I didn't see that coming. <laughs> oh, I just finished um, Bob Iger's book, The Disney CEO. That's a good read. It's an autobiography. You don't see many CEOs write. They just don't write. So you don't have many There's biographies out there, but you don't see many autobiographies. He happens to be a very good writer. It reads kind of like a novel. I like that book a lot. And at the end, he summarizes all the lessons he learned. 
That's a good one. The other book I really enjoyed along a similar vein is Shoe Dog, the founder of Nike's book. Also reads like a novel, but it's really hard to really get, you can hire consultants and you can talk to people, but what's it really like to be a CEO? And of course you get a rosy version from these books, but you get a view into what they're going through. And it's helpful for me to read those types of books. Those two have helped a lot. Yeah, I can't even imagine for you as a founder. And I think on the theme of autobiographies, I just bought two off Amazon. Number one, Mark Benioff's new book. I haven't read it yet, but it's on my list. He's a good writer and he's a thoughtful guy. Yeah, he is. And then number two is Steve Schwarzman's What It Takes. Okay, just down, I just started that. On, so I only listen to books now. I don't really read them. And I have a house in Vermont and I drive, it's a long drive to Vermont, so I listen to them. It turns out when you write a book, it really matters who the reader of the book is and Bob Iger's reader was excellent. And you can tell he's a trained actor and really good. Schwartzman's book I started and <laughs> the reader didn't catch me. The, the, the reader didn't catch me, but I'll, I'll give that another go. All right. We'll have to let Steve know. <laughs> Brian, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Once again, a big thank you to Brian for joining us today. If you're a startup looking to drive more efficient sales, I'd highly recommend you check out the HubSpot website as they've got a ton of quality content and learning materials. I've also included quite a few resources in today's show notes, which can be found on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com. Now, we've got a whole host of great guests joining the show in the coming weeks, so I'd love if you could tweet your questions at me and I can give you a shout out during those interviews. You can find me on Twitter at John Heasy. That's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.